Well, good morning. Welcome to Soul City Church. How are you doing this morning? Good to see you. Those of you who are here in an overflow historic day for the city of Chicago. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. He is a faithful God. He has not forgotten our city. And uh, our city certainly knows how to celebrate that. And some of you may just be rolling in from last night this morning. So uh, what a fun time for our city. I want to let you know something else we're celebrating this week. Uh, really had a fun day this week because earlier this week, tractors and trucks and diggers rolled up on the dirt right next door. And we are so excited. In fact, Jeannie was so excited that they were here that she actually ran out and asked if she could operate the digger. And she did. She actually got to dig some earth up. And we are so excited. And if you're kind of new or wondering why that's such a big deal to us, it's because we are making more and more room for more and more people to experience the transformational love of Jesus. Look around you. We've run out of room here. Uh, and so we want to make more room for more people to experience the transformational love of Jesus. And, uh, and so that's why we're building our whole transformation center on the land next to us. And some of you were here last year, you got to be a part of this beautiful faith adventure called For the Love, because that really is what we are about. We want to be for God's love being known in this world. And we had a pretty God-sized goal for what our church would do to take the, a part of what it's going to cost for us to buy that land and to move on to that land. And so we had a God-sized goal of $7 million. And our church, I love whoever's cheery today. I'm, I'm with you. You, I don't, you got to come back to the next two services. Um, so we committed as a church to seven million of that, and this church last fall, this time last year, committed to five point eight million dollars as a church pledged over these next two years. And so I just want to say to those of you who were here for that and were a part of that, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are a part of extending God's love in very real and tangible ways. And if you were a part of that last year and made a commitment to For the Love, and maybe you've kind of fallen behind on giving towards that, or you've forgotten to get started on that, I want to encourage you to do so. Don't miss out. Don't, don't miss out on what God's doing here. And so maybe today after church, you need to go home and make sure that that's all set up for you to do that, because we don't want you to miss out on what God's doing. And for those of you who weren't here last year, and just by show of hands, how many of you started coming to Soul City Church within the last year? Raise your hand. Just look around the room. That's incredible. Well, we have fun things planned for you. And so over the next couple of weeks, you're going to be hearing about how you can be a part of what God's doing. Because if you're good at math, you realize that if we committed to seven and we raised 5.8, then there's still 1.2 to go. And we believe that's an opportunity invitation for you to actually be a part of what God's doing here. And so we have some fun stuff coming up for you and for our whole church as well. So exciting, exciting days. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab a Bible and open to Galatians chapter 3. If you brought a Bible with you, great. You can open that or open it on your phone. If not, would everyone grab a pen and a Bible and turn to page 812. If you don't have a Bible and the gray Bible's right in front of you or in the seat in front of you, uh, you can turn to page 812, Galatians chapter three. I want you to hold that. So you can kind of open to that and then kind of leave it on your lap for a little bit. This is to remind you that we are going to get to the Bible over the course of our conversation today. So I want you to hold that open to Galatians chapter three and we're gonna get to that in a moment. Today we're teaching, uh, kicking off a brand new teaching series called God's Politics. And they say there's really three things you should never talk about about in mixed company. You should never talk about uh, money. You should never talk about religion. You should never talk about politics. So we've already received the offering. That's one. And now we're going to go for the next two. So I figure we're just going to knock them all out today. Uh, and we're going to have an honest look at an honest conversation. And my goal for this weekend is actually pretty simple. I'm going to tell you exactly how to vote. 
this fall. I want to tell, I'm not kidding. I'm going to tell you exactly how you can vote this fall. And here's a clue. We all know it's definitely not Democrat. Uh, oh, see, I love getting you guys like that. That's awesome. I said Republican at the last one, Democrat at this one. That's, it's fun. It's fun. It's not Republican. It's not third party. We're not going to tell you who to vote for. We would never dream of doing that. That's not what God has called us as a church to be. But what we are going to talk about today is how you can vote, how you can walk into this election season with a greater perspective because of Jesus and how you can be okay no matter who's elected, even if they're not your candidate. So that's what we're going to look at over the course of our time this morning. Now, here's the deal. Um, you're going to hear us say this every week of the, over the next couple of weeks leading up to the election uh, in this teaching series. You're going to hear us say this every week. And this is really, honestly, only for those of us who would call ourselves people of faith. This is only for those of us who would call ourselves Jesus follower. If you're here today and that's not you, I am so glad you're here. Uh, I bet you, the last place you thought you'd ever talk about politics was in church, but surprise, that's what we're talking about today. So if you're not, you wouldn't call yourself that, I'm so glad that you're here. This is really for those of us, this next part I'm going to say is for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus or people of faith. And here's what you're going to hear us say every single week over the next couple weeks. Here's the deal. We don't put our faith in elections. We don't put our faith in elections. As people of faith, we put our faith in action. Not in our actions. We put our faith in action. We live it out. We actually put it to work in this world. We don't kind of outsource our hope to some candidate somewhere that we've never met and will never know because we know the source of hope and that is God himself. That doesn't mean that we don't engage politically. It doesn't mean that we don't vote. It just means that we don't become overcome by outcomes. Can I get an amen on that one? We're not going to be overcome by whatever outcome comes because we actually have a relationship with the one who is over it all. It means that when we're tempted to rant and rave on Facebook and let everyone know why our candidate's the best and theirs is the worst, we actually choose self-control because we know the one who's in control. Amen. See, we can have a different perspective. Even though it may seem like our country is losing its mind, <laughs> we can have a different perspective rooted in the reality of Jesus. And this election is turning into one of the nastiest and most divisive, and if I'm being honest, the most embarrassing election in our history as a nation. And we've all seen it and we've all felt it no matter where you kind of fall in your politics. So we thought it'd be helpful over the next couple of weeks if at least in this room, we talked about real issues that actually matter to God and to people of faith. So today we're looking at race and power and how we can be a part of what God is doing to write a better story in this world. Now, little disclaimer before we get into the heart of it. I need to name something right at the top. I don't know if you've uh, noticed this or not, but I am a white, middle-class, very uh, handsome, <laughs> moderately educated male. So I am a white, middle-aged, middle-class male, all right? So I, I just wanted to name that. I don't know if you could tell, but I wanted to name that because what that represents is the most privileged status in our country. And so I know what we're talking about today coming from my experience. You may be like, well, well, who are you to say? Who are you to speak? And while those things are true of myself, there is something far truer about me. And that is that I am a follower of the way of Jesus Christ. And that I actually, listen, I have dedicated my life and I've laid down my life 
for him. So while those things are still true that you could check off on, you know, kind of a census about me, while that's true of me, there's something truer of me, and that is that I'm a pastor, and that I love God, and that I love the people of God, and I want to help this church be all of who God created us to be. So I thought it might be important to just name that today as we walk into what God has to say about race and power, and more specifically racism and prejudice and the abuse of power. And I know that we're not going to even come close to saying everything today. Far from it. And I may not say the thing that you really want me to say, or I may say some things that you don't want me to say, but all I want to say is what we want to do today is spark a conversation that leads to transformation. To spark a conversation based on the teaching and the wisdom of the Bible that leads to more and more conversations that lead to more and more transformation in our lives so that we could actually be the spiritual community that God has called and created us to be. Cool? All right, here, since it's still kind of early in the morning, I thought what might help jog, kind of get you going, is a little pop quiz. Everyone loves pop quizzes. And so we're going to do a little American history pop quiz. And so if you know the answer, I want you to shout it out to this question. Does anyone know what year the Declaration of Independence was signed? 1776. Very good. Pat yourselves on the back. Very good. You did a great job. Uh, now here's the next question for bonus round. Does anyone know any of it? Hamilton fans, you know at least one line <laughs> from this. You can probably sing it. Okay, so that, I'm glad I asked because we're going to need to go through this. Uh, I want to read to you the second sentence in the Declaration of Independence. In fact, you're going to read it. We're going to read it out loud. The first sentence is a paragraph long. It's America's first great run-on sentence. Very, very long. And so this is the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence, the most popular part. So we're going to put it up on the screen and let's read it out loud together. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let's pause right there. I want you to pay attention to the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. This is an amazing, amazing, and incredibly important document, hugely significant for the forming of our nation. And right off the bat, what we see our founding fathers, because it was all men at that point, what we saw them laying out for us was that there are truths about us that should, there should be no discussion about. That phrase that we hold to be self-evident is an assumption of moral you know, understanding and common ground. These are just truths that we should know about each other. And these are truths that cannot be taken away from us. That's what unalienable means because they were given to us. This is a very bold thing to put in a national document, the founding of a country. They were actually given to us by who? By our creator, by God. This is a very revolutionary thing to say. That right off the bat, we believe that people are actually have dignity, worth, rights that we don't bestow on them, but God, in fact, has given to them. And because God's given it to them, no one can actually take it away from them. So right off the bat, in the Declaration of Independence, they're already addressing issues of inequity, even race to a certain extent, even though, as we're going to see in a moment, very, very, very complicated context. But they're saying all people, all people are to be equal. That's just a God-given thing. And then they go on to talk about power and how to avoid the abuse of power. Third sentence says this. Let's read this out loud. It says, 
that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. All right, so that feels a little bit like King James Bible. What does that actually mean? It means that the only power our government has is given to them by whom? Us. That means power to the who? People. That that's actually how our nation was set up. That there would not be an abuse of power because power was a right given to elected officials by the people. That's where we started. And it's a beautiful intent, isn't it? And one of the things that makes our nation great is our great intentions. We are a nation of great intentions, great aspirations, great dreams. But we don't always see them all the way through and carry them out. Because what's so interesting, at the signing of this very powerful, informative document, the reality was, and you saw the word men appear several times, the reality was women didn't actually have the right to vote. In fact, it would be many decades before women would be able to fight for the right to actually have a fair say in our democracy. In fact, at the signing of this document, most black folks that were living in our country at this time were victims of institutionalized slavery. And in fact, they too did not have the right to vote, nor did they have the right to own land of any kind at that point, nor were they even seen as fully one of us. In fact, at that time, the prevailing thought was that they would be represented in Congress as three-fifths of a voting person, robbing all dignity from their identity. They experienced very little of the inalienable rights that were so supposed to be self-evident. At the signing of this document, Native Americans were continuing to be taken advantage of as they had their land taken from them. And it would be another hundred years before they would have their own Native American Bill of Rights. So you can see the, the trouble, the inequity, even in the context of our intentions. Again, our great nation is, I believe, great. And it's full of great intentions. But it doesn't always see them all the way through. And you don't even have to look back to our American history or look out throughout our country. You can actually look to our own city of Chicago to see the you know, prevailing reality of prejudice, even racism, and the abuse of power. In fact, crooked politics is one of our main exports here in Chicago. It's what we're known for around the world. And our own history, as beautiful as this city is, and I love this city, I love this city, but it's also a broken city. And it has its own fair share of its own history of racism and the abuse of power. You can go all the way back to the race riots of 1919, defining moment in our city's history. Go back to the public housing debacle of the 60s and 70s that we're still paying the price for, people are still paying the price for. You can look at a broken public school system that continu continues to perpetuate racial inequity and class divides by resourcing neighborhoods that are favorable and withholding resources from neighborhoods deemed not so. You can look at the social unrest recently in our own city when it comes to those in power, specifically when it comes to our police department. In fact, earlier this year, a mayoral task force put together by Mayor Rahm Emanuel 
Investigating Chicago police had this to say. These are their words, not mine. They found that there is a substantial evidence that people of color, particularly African Americans, have had disproportionately negative experiences with the police over an extended period of time. That's one way of putting it. But many of us, many of you, have experienced the reality of that. And while this is certainly not an indictment on all cops, far from it, it does highlight what we already know, that there are broken systems of inequity, even prejudice, even racism, and the abuse of power right here in our city that we love. And at the same time, what it reveals to us is that as beautiful and amazing as our city is, I love our city. Do you know our city is one of the most segregated cities in the country? So we are simultaneously one of the most diverse cities in the nation and one of the most segregated cities. In fact, this is really fun. Earlier this year, CNN voted the city of Chicago the most segregated city in America right now. Someone tells me no one's hanging that plaque on their wall. How is that possible that we can be one of the most diverse cities and be one of the most segregated cities? Well, it's because of a reality that we far too often don't talk about or do anything about. It's that diversity, as we found in our own city, diversity does not equal equality. Diversity does not equal equality. You can be an incredibly diverse city but not have equality for all. How is that possible? Diversity does not equal equality. Now, I didn't grow up in Chicago. I grew up in the Bay Area of San Francisco. And where I grew up is a very, very, very diverse area. But I lived in the suburbs, which was less diverse than the rest of the area. And one of the cities right next to where I grew up is a city called Oakland, California. And Oakland is a historically and beautifully black city, largely predominantly African-American city. And every time we would go through Oakland, either through Oakland to get to San Francisco or through Oakland to run errands or to drop something off, every time we would drive through Oakland, my family would lock the car doors. Now, we didn't lock the car doors driving around my city, but when we went just two cities over, we would lock the car doors. And maybe you've done that too. Maybe as you kind of drive through certain neighborhoods here in Chicago, you lock the car door, you look ahead, you don't make eye contact with anyone around you. And so early on in my life, a story was formed that this city is a dangerous city. And I need to lock my doors. I need to be careful. The problem was at the same time as that story being formed in my life, one of my best friends lived in Oakland. His name was Casey. He's black. I mean, he was, he's still black. He was black then, he's black today. Like, I just checked on Facebook this week. He's still black. And so I have, at the same time, this diverse friendship, but things were not equal. There was diversity, but there was not equality. He only lived 10.5 miles away from my house. He lived on 73rd Ave, which is a pretty rough part of Oakland. And every time I would drive into his house, I had the story that I should lock my doors, but then I'm going to see my friend. So we had a diverse friendship, but it doesn't mean things were equal. His life, my life, might as well have been a million miles away. And it's a pretty powerful thing when your story meets up with relationship. And what begins to happen when all of your, you know, preconceived stereotypes actually have to face the reality of relationship and you realize the inequity in 
our world. My hunch is that you have stories as well. Here's the deal. All of us have stories. So we can just like not pretend that this is for other people. All of us have stories. You have stories. I have stories about certain groups of people, about certain types of people, about people who grew up in this kind of family, about people who grew up in this kind of neighborhood. Every single one of us has our own sets of stories. They're the jokes that you tell growing up and that you continue to tell this day. They're the assumptions you make about whole groups of people. There's the stereotypes that you stick with throughout your life because they've worked for you so far. We all have them. All of us have them. But thanks be to God in heaven, that our stories that we have about others actually aren't the end of the story. Because there's good news, and I promise you, there is good news. What, and what if I just said, let's pray, amen, and that was the end of today's message? That would be the worst message ever at Soul City Church. Because on my hunches, you're feeling a little heavy, and what do I do about this? Well, there is actually good news for us to celebrate today. Because here's the here's truth, whether you realize it or not, here's the truth. Everyone is born with a race. Okay, that's like a duh, Jarrett, obviously. Everyone is born with a race. Now, it may not be as obvious to you. You may not know as much of your culture, history as others, but everyone is, in some context, born with a race. But no one is born a racist. Did you know that? No one is born a racist. Racism and prejudice is a learned behavior. No one is born a racist. We learn that. We're taught that. We settle for the lowest common denominator, the lowest bar possible. So if it's a learned behavior, that means that we can learn another way, that we can actually practice a better way, a way firmly rooted and most evident in the way of Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. That Bible that's been sitting on your lap begging for you to open it. I want you to have it to Galatians chapter 3. If you're not there already, open it back up. Let me give you some context as to the better way of Jesus that flies in the face of prejudice and racism and abuse of power that we can see in our nation's history, that we can see in our very own city. Let me give you some cultural context as to what's going on in Galatians chapter 3. The church is maybe 20, maybe 20 years old at this point, the very first church. So it only existed for about 20 years at this point. And it was spreading, this revolution in the church was spreading throughout the known world. But what's interesting about the church is that those first followers of Jesus, and therefore the first leaders of the church, were actually had something in common. All of them had something in common. They were all Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. That's where his ministry began. And so they were all Jewish. And so an interesting thing began to happen because the leadership was all Jewish. There was an assumption somewhere that this way of Jesus was about converting from Judaism to Jesusism. They didn't have Christianity yet, so I'll say Jesusism. So from Judaism to Jesusism. And so the assumption was that this new way in Jesus made possible by his death and resurrection was powerful good news for us, for Jews. And it wasn't actually until Acts chapter 10 that God gave Peter a trajectory-shifting vision and said, Peter, what are you thinking? This good news is not just for Jews, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. And then that's where the ministry of Paul began when you begin to see Paul taking the good news of Jesus to all kinds of different people. So even in the history of the church, it starts off with culturalism and nationalism already baked in. And God had to break that. 
And by God's grace, they did. Except for there was a group of folks that came from Jerusalem and visited a church in Galatia. It was a newly formed church. And they came in teaching that being a follower of Jesus is good, but if you really want to impress God, you should pick up the old customs, the old Jewish customs that we used to hold. That'll really impress God. And so they began to teach that the gospel alone wasn't enough. It was the gospel plus these old customs and covenants. And so Paul had had enough of that. And so that's why we get to the letter in Galatians 3. Let's pick up in verse 26. This is what Paul has to say to them and to us. He says this. So look, here's the reality. In Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Okay, you're all, you all have the same status. Children of God through faith in what Jesus did, the cross and an empty tomb. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, began a relationship with Christ, listen to this language, have clothed yourselves with Christ. That means that you have wrapped yourself, you've wrapped your identity with a new identity, and that's the identity of Christ. So when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you literally put on Jesus, the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus over everything in your life. Verse 28, this is where it gets really fun. Paul goes on to say this. So there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all what? You are all one in Christ Jesus. You might want to circle that, underline that. This is, this is paradigm shifting teaching. Paul is saying, look, there's no Jew or Gentile. Now he's speaking directly to some of the controversy in this church of that day. There's no division. It's not like one group is more important to God than another. There's no Jew or Gentile here. And he's naming not only that kind of prejudice and even some racial mistreating that was happening, he's also naming power structures of the day. He's saying, no, nor, neither is there slave nor free. In Jesus, when we put on Jesus, our status in this world changes with him. He says, they're not even slave or free. Then he goes on to attack gender inequity. And he says, that neither is there male nor female. Now, this is really powerful stuff. In fact, historian Thomas Cahill said that this is actually the very first expression of egalitarianism in human history. The first place historians can find anywhere in any recorded writing that someone names the equality and the dignity and the worth of all people. And it's found right here. In Galatians 3, what Paul is doing masterfully here is dismantling racism and the abuse of power while simultaneously building us up into oneness in Jesus. Now, he's not, no, this is very, very, very important. I want to keep this up on the screen. He is not saying that race and power structures don't exist. Those things most certainly do in our world. He's not diminishing our distinctives, but what rather he is doing is saying that our distinctives need no longer divide. Do you get it? He's not diminishing our distinctives by saying, okay, well, when you come to church, everyone needs to act like everyone else. Everyone needs to look like everyone else. Everyone needs to dress like everyone else. Just one big homogenized community of people. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying he's not trying to diminish the distinctives that make us a part of who we are. Rather, what he's saying is those things need no longer divide. And we don't play those roles, those cards, those realities against each other. That's the reality of Jesus. In Jesus, there is no 
room for racism. There's no room for it because we have a new identity and a new oneness made available to us through Jesus. In Jesus, there's no place for prejudice because the tables have been leveled, equaled through him, his death and resurrection. We actually can have a oneness, so there's no place for that. In Jesus, we don't tolerate intolerance because that's not at all how God views us or how God treats us. In Jesus, we are called beyond our culture to cultivate something far more captivating. And that is a beautiful, dynamic community rooted and established in unity. See, the invitation of Jesus is far greater than our current cultural conversations. Our current cultural conversations are around diversity and it's incredibly important incredibly important conversations and progress is happening, needs to happen in our schools, in our workplaces, in churches, where we need to see diversity. It is a powerful and beautiful place to start, but diversity is no place to stay. It alone in itself does not have power. And so what Jesus is calling us to is even greater than that. In fact, it's even greater than equality because equality is what our forefathers hoped for. That was their great intentions for us is that not only would we be a diverse nation, but we would be a nation of equality. Equality is a powerful thing. We still have not yet achieved that dream of their intentions in our original documents of the founding of our nation. But see, Jesus is inviting us to something far more beautiful and powerful than diversity and equality. Jesus is inviting you and me to unity. To unity. Where we no longer let our distinctions, our distinctives divide us. Where we find a oneness that can only be found in Jesus. He invites you and me into unity. This was the prayer that Jesus prayed. He actually, do you know that Jesus prayed for you? He prayed specifically for you. He prayed for me. In John 17, just hours before he would face the cross, Jesus prayed that we would be one. And that the world would know that we love God and belong to God because there is a unity, there is a oneness among us that is not of this world. He prayed that we would actually be one. This church would no longer be what Dr. Martin Luther King so adequately described it as, as the most segregated hour of the week. But that we would be something far greater than that. That we would be a church that is one. And if any group, if any place can get this right, I believe, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe this. I believe the church can get this right. In fact, I believe the church must get this right. That we have to get this right. What does it mean for us to come and to find unity, common ground in Jesus, in the reality of Jesus? And the truth is, it's way easier for me to say in a sermon than it is for us to actually do. It's way easier to say than it is to do. It's way easier to hear than it is to actually do. But if we're ever going to see the unity that Jesus prayed about and that he promised for us, it's going to take each of us and all of us to see it a reality. Each of us actually has a part to play in this. So I want to just offer you a few thoughts in closing on how we do that. How do we begin to be a place where unity 
reigns and rules. A place unlike any other place in this world. In a nation that continues to become more and more racially polarizing, how do we come together in a way where there is no black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Middle Eastern or male or female or Democrat or Republican or whatever party you're a part of, but that we actually find our identity, we clothe ourselves in the reality of Jesus? A couple thoughts. Again, this is not everything, but it's a great place to start. You might want to jot these down. First thing that you and I can begin to do, that we must actually, in fact, begin to do, is we have to surrender our stories. We have to surrender our stories. All of us have stories. All of us have stereotypes, assumptions about groups of people based on all, for all kinds of different reasons. But if we're ever going to experience that oneness, we have to surrender our stories. We have to be able to name what our stories are. And this is a real work that takes place where you have to go like deep inside and go, okay, are there any places of prejudice in me? Any places, any stories I'm writing about certain neighborhoods in this city? Is there a reason why I don't ever drive west of this street or south of that street? Is there a reason why I lock my doors? What's the, is there a story there that I need to check out? I need to be able to surrender. In fact, I'll use a biblical word for it. I need to confess. Because it's keeping me from playing my part in unity. The longer I keep holding on to my story, the longer I keep holding you at bay. So we have to be able to surrender our stories. What are the stories that you have been keeping and who might they be keeping you from? Second, we need to start cultivating curious conversations. That is for my wife. She loves when all the words have the same letter at the start, and so I just thought I would throw that in there for her. We have to cultivate curious conversations. What does that mean? What does that look like? That means that you and I must become listeners and learners, that we need to stop surrounding ourselves with people who think the same and believe the same and say the same as us, that you don't always just put on the same news source that tells you exactly what you want to hear, that you don't go to the same sites and say the same thing that support your beliefs, that you actually become a listener and a learner. Once you begin to surrender your stories, you need to start cultivating curious conversations with folks who are different from you. And I want you to look around this room real quick. Everyone just take a quick look around this room. Look how many different people there are. There's people different than you in this space. There's people you can learn from. There's people you can listen to. There's places you can grow. So I want to give you one question that really helps you become a more curious question asker, someone who cultivates curious conversations. Here's the question. You might want to jot this down. The question is this. Can you tell me what it's like for you, dot, 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 can you tell me what it's like for you to be the only person of color in our workplace? Can you tell me what it's like for you to be the first woman to ever hold this position? Can you tell me what it's like for you to be a part of this kind of, you know, grow up in this kind of family, grow up in this neighborhood? Can you tell me what it's like for you? And when they begin to speak, you stop speaking. <laughs> The only words you're allowed to say at that point are, tell me more. Can you tell me what it's like for you to grow up, 
like this, like that? Can you tell me what it's like for you to live in reality of this, that? And you listen and you learn and you begin to understand and you begin to lay a foundation rooted in Christ for oneness and unity when you do so. Last thought, build better bridges. Build better bridges. What does that mean? The Bible uses a word, it's a very bible word called reconciliation. It comes from the Bible. And the word reconciliation means to bring back together. To bring back to how it should be. That God does the great reconciling work of bringing us back into relationship with him through Jesus. And that we get to do the great work of reconciliation with each other. By building better bridges. My old boss, pastor down in Atlanta, Andy Stanley, says it this way. He says that the further you are from a problem, the simpler the solution seems. The further you are from a problem, the simpler the solution seems. It's obvious, right? They just need to do this. They just need to do that. I don't know why they can't get it together. I don't know what their problem is. The further you are from a problem, the simpler the solution seems. So when you look at CPS, it's easy to say, oh, it's so broken. Oh, it's been broken by bureaucracy. Why can't CPS get it straight? The further you are from the problems and the realities of CPS, the simpler your solution is going to be. Let me help you take a next step. I want to encourage you to do what Abella taught us last week, to partner up with some of our amazing partners through LoveWorks. You want to be a part of what it means to build better bridges? You need to actually go and be with. And so if you don't understand all oh, CPS says, or I don't understand, I just don't know why they can't get their act together. You know what you can do? You can actually show up at Brown or Dead Elementary Schools and you can begin reading with the student. And I guarantee you, you will see the problem in a whole new light. And here's the deal. It doesn't get simpler. It gets more complex. And it's going to require more of you than just pointing fingers. Build better bridges. Oh, our city has just got such a problem with homelessness. And I don't understand. Everywhere I look, seems like I don't know where. I don't even know where they send all these people in the wintertime. The further you are from a problem, the simpler the solution seems. So you know what I encourage you to do? Do what Abella taught us last week. Partner with one of our LoveWorks partner, Breakthrough Urban Ministries. I am so blown away by how many of you showed up last week to serve lunch and to serve dinner with our friends at Breakthrough Urban Ministry, a holistic homeless ministry not far from here. And if it seems simple to you what we need to do about this problem, then I'd encourage you to actually show up and put some skin in the game and build better bridges. Become an I mentor, become a mentor to a high school kid here in the city of Chicago. There's plenty of opportunities. You can learn more about them by going to loveworkschicago.com. That's our whole goal is that we would be a church that builds better bridges and partners with what God's actually doing in this city. Now, I told you that I would tell you exactly how to vote this fall. And that's exactly what we've been talking about. If you want to know how to vote, you vote with your life. You vote with your actions. You vote with your relationships. You vote by surrendering your stories. You, you actually vote by cultivating curious conversations. You vote by building better bridges. You don't outsource your hope to someone else because you can actually know the source of your hope. Be engaged, be involved 
But for God's sakes, do not be overcome with outcomes. You don't have to be. There's a better way, and it's the way of Jesus where you don't have to put your faith in elections and what's gonna happen this fall. You can actually this week put your faith in action. You can actually put your faith into action. Then while people of power will continue to wrestle with the abuse of power, we will actually not be shaken. As a person of faith and relationship with God, you will not be shaken in the face of the abuse of power because you actually know an all-powerful and all-loving God who is actually ultimately always in control. And when you're all freaked out about who's going to be president and whether or not you should pack an RV and go move to Canada or not, you don't need to freak out or fret because you can actually know the King of Kings who's currently seated on the throne and actually gives power to every elected official and then says to you and me, pray for those in power. So you don't have to live in fear. You can actually have hope in the face of chaotic and turbulent times because you can know the one from whom hope comes. And instead of picking sides and playing politics, let's be about building something more beautiful. Let's be about building something rooted in the reality of Jesus. Let's be a church that is one. Let's let this city see that it's possible, that the world might see that we are one and that we know a God who actually makes it possible for us to be one. And let's cling to, not this party or that, but cling to the name of Jesus. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess, every stereotype will fall on its face. In the name, the matchless name of Jesus, who makes it possible for us to be one. So I want to encourage you to stand up, and we're going to pray together right now and worship God together in this place. And we take a posture of open-handedness. I think that's probably the best posture you can take in these crazy days that we're living through. Instead of clenched fists, open hands. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. I believe you're in control. God, I believe it's possible for us to be one. So you join me in praying to him right now in this moment. We thank you, Jesus, for your name, your matchless name, your powerful name, your beautiful name. It's at your name, Jesus, that we actually find peace and we find hope, we find purpose, and we find unity. There's no program or policy or political official that can make that possible. Only you, Jesus. And so while we choose to be engaged, we also choose to put our hope in something far greater than election cycles. We put our hope in you. And Jesus, at your name, we pray, we pray by your name, you would help us surrender our stories lay down any lies that have kept us at a distance from you and from others, that we would listen, that we would learn, and that we would build bridges like you have built a bridge to us through your son, Jesus. And so Jesus it is with great joy and abandon that we worship you now. We will not let any Cubs fan out-worship our worship in this moment. We choose to cling to you and sing out to you because your name is above all names and it's worthy of praise. It's in your name that we pray and sing. Amen. Amen.